Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the GM Studio, a podcast all about the tabletop RPG hobby. Uh, advice is given, bullshit is said, and I don't know, just a bunch of other shit that has to do with the game, as well as every now and then we'll talk about how we're just doing dumb shit. Uh, I'm your host, Matt. I am David. And today's show, we've got a couple emails from you guys out there, as well as our number one fan, Rebecca. Thank you yet again for some emails. She wants to know all about gritty damage, uh, our gritty realism. Have you ever looked at the gritty realism variant rule, Dave? Uh, for D&D, you mean? Yeah. A couple of them, yeah. There, there's a couple of variant rules that uh, kind of go for that aesthetic. Uh, I think they're presented in the DMG. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I've I'm, I've never used any of them, but I'm fairly familiar with what yeah, they're she's, trying to accomplish. She's, wonder, she's wondering about one in particular uh, that's in the DMG there that we'll get to. We are still on hiatus from our <laughs> Curse of Strahd game right now. Boo. Beto boo. Boo. <laughs> boo this man. We'll have our community questions as well as if we have time towards the end there. I shortened my list of best of 2022 uh, so that we could just put it into a little bit of 20 minutes segment. But first off, let's start with uh, I have been playing my Savage Shadowrun game. I took Dave's advice and I'm going kind of like the cultist route now. And it's turned the game in a very good direction. Uh, it's turned out to be everything I want. And now the creative juices are flowing. And I can come up with stuff a lot easier now that I have like a good point uh, that I'm heading towards. So I got to say thank you, David. Uh, thank you very much it's for it, the idea. And now it's, it's like it's like this guy knows some shit from, you know, a little bit. You know, it's got that crossover dribble. You know, it's working on that crossover dribble sometimes, you know. No, I'm glad it's working out for you, man. It's working out very well. So that just goes to show that sometimes our advice uh, does work. Yes, <laughs> but only for each other, not, not yeah, for anyone else. Not for anyone else. All right. You want to do a, a community question? Sure. Let me grab the old trusty D20 out of here. Now, I'll go with the Sorcerer D20 this week. I've been doing the gray D20. Mm, all right. six, what? Uh, six. Six. I got a six. All right. This one comes from Chad Evans. What's a good way to get a lawful evil character to adventure with good PCs in D&D? The player lies? Oh, how they lie. That's how one of my players marauded a chaotic evil, uh, or marauded as chaotic evil. He pretended to spare captives. He gave some of his earnings to the poor. He allowed himself to give healing potions to those in the party. But he was lying about everything he did the entire game. It was through gritted teeth that he handed over some of his treasure. All in all, what can I do to help bring in a lawful evil character and get him to work well with good aligned PCs? This is one of those questions that I just uh, reject the premise of. I am of the opinion that there shouldn't, you shouldn't allow players to run evil characters. Mm -hmm. Like D&D is not about marauding and evil. It's, it's a heroic game of fantasy. And so you should limit character alignments to characters that are you know at least in the good or neutral spectrum or if you're going to subvert that entire thing then maybe go with all of the characters are evil but my point about this stands from years and years of talking about this where people are always like 
oh, it'd be really good to really fun to run an evil campaign. It's like, right. But the, what makes D&D fun, at least from my perspective, is good guys are defense and bad guys are offense. So the part of what makes the dramatic tension of being the good guys is that you're constantly trying to fight off the tides of evil. It's less exciting if you're the bad guys that are just like randomly sowing chaos. That said, if you are dead set on having a lawful evil specifically, lawful evil is probably one of the better um, evil alignments to incorporate into a game. And that's because lawful characters are constrained by some sense of uh, respect of authority. So whether that's their own personal code or whether it's some sort of law of the land, the way you get them to all work in unison is that you have the catalyst and the driving factor of whatever the quest is be something that any character that is either good aligned or lawful aligned would get behind. That requires you to have some sort of uh, authority above the PCs directing the cause. So a lawful evil character might be malevolent, but they will still respect the laws of the land or their very own code of conduct mm -hmm. based on whatever that is. So you have to figure out a way to keep that, keep in that lane. Uh, I, would you have anything to add to that, Matt? Uh, the only thing coming from a person that's had a successful evil campaign where they were all evil, the lawful evil character, which was me, had to keep everyone else in line. Uh, so if you can find a way to that this lawful evil character has to work with these guys and make it work. Like Dave was saying, they have this code that they have to go along with in order to make it function. No matter what, the person is probably going to hate it because uh, they're going to be named the hero many, many a times. And probably when they don't really care, it's fine. Um, but I, I am also on David's side when it comes to, I think, uh, if there is an alignment in the game, uh, alignment should be the same, uh, a little bit easier. The evil doesn't actually work very well. Otherwise, there's just there's going to be a lot of inside uh, fighting. There's going to be arguments, uh, which is just going to turn people against each other at some point. Well, as a kind of a final note on this, I think that this is something to think about, which is lawful evil characters are more duplicitous than other types of evil characters mm. typically because they have to be and so operationally to matt's point the lawful evil character might be going along and so they might have different intent all along the way but if they're doing the things the other party is doing if they realize the rest of the party is good and then it's like you have to find a reason why he would align himself with these good characters yeah, what he, is the goal there's he's a bigger... gotta have a goal at the end in order to work with these guys there has to be something big at the end of the of the trail here yeah it has to serve some sort of value that this character has and presumably that value exists like as some sort of 
thing outside the party, the mission, which is a higher calling for the lawful evil character. So they might have to be duplicitous, but, and that could just be at punctuated times of high drama when he betrays the party or something. But 90% of the time, he's going to be going along with something. You know, he's basically a mole. A mole can't directly and overtly undermine, uh, you know, the goals of whoever they're embedded with because they'll reveal themselves. So they have to figure out subtle ways. And I think that that's more interesting. Um, but that said, try to tease out of your player why they're, why they're adventuring with this party of good characters. And further, what is this, the, what is the lawful in their lawful evil? Mm -hmm. To what are they adhered that is constrains them in some way because otherwise if they're not constrained in any way by some sense of code of conduct uh whether they're a cultist or you know a fallen knight or something would be like a a good example like you still have a code of conduct or laws of the land a lawful evil character despite the fact that they might not like a benevolent ruler will respect the laws of their land because they delineate themselves from the chaotic masses in that way. They're more sophisticated and usually more Machiavellian in that regard. So they're more interesting to play than chaotic evil or neutral evil characters. Um, but my, my attitude is generally that this is a scenario that really can't work very much long-term when there's disparate, this disparate of alignments, unless you try to have it be some sort of common enemy situation like the X-Men and Magneto, right? Like, you have some common enemy that is antithetical to the lawful evil carriage, and then they can put their differences aside toward this common goal. But like, there's not going to ever be that camaraderie in the party that you want to have. And so, uh, I mean, it can work, but I, I think you need to tread carefully. But I think that's the answer forward if you want to make it gel, at least in some way that's cohesive. Agree. I think that's the, uh, the base answer for all of it. So with that, um, let's get on to some of our emails that we've gotten over our little break that we had, uh, lots of emails as, uh, this first one here that I got from Chad, uh, he writes in saying, I've heard you guys talk about how you don't really prep very much for, uh, for your adventures, as well as other people shouldn't have to prep that much. Can you go over how you actually prep for your games or at least for at least one or for at least one session? Um, I can tell you for me, uh, as the main game that I play right now is Savage Worlds, mm -hmm. I don't have to prep a lot at all. Uh, Savage Worlds makes it pretty easy to make up shit on the fly, especially when it's NPCs and all that. What I do is I have a one sheet that I make that has the main story that's going on right now, a, a little paragraph of that, uh, some bullet points of things that I want to happen at least within the next three to four sessions. And then I'll have uh, some locations that I know that they're going to hit that I want them to hit. So for like uh, Jeff, who's our decker, I'll have the host and uh, the sections of the host for his hacking and the, uh, the target numbers for everything. Uh, other than that, I just write down little blots here and there on pages of what I want to happen in the next couple sessions. And like I said, when it comes to NPCs, if I ever need NPCs on the fly, I know this guy is not going to be a wild card and he's a basic thug. So he'll have a D8 strength 
uh, a six agility, you know, D six agility. It makes it a little bit easier when it comes to wild cards. I'll usually make something ahead of time or I'll at least write it down in the book to have it for later. Uh, but how about you, Dave? What do you do for prep these days? There's a distinction to be made here as to whether you're prepping for an adventure that you are creating or prepping for an adventure that is a box adventure. So there are different types of preparation are necessary, but I think they kind of touch on the main pillars of each of them. Like I run a lot of box adventures and I have for a while. Um, so the key element for quote unquote prepping, if that's what you want to call it, is to make sure that you have an idea of where the PCs are going to go. And this goes the same for your homebrew adventures. What are the next few things that are likely to happen in the adventure? And make sure you know them very well. You have to make sure that there are no surprises for you, that you never spend time reading through or pouring over nonsense. You should know where all the hidden items are. You should know what treasure is there. Similarly, for like a box adventure, if there are magic items or enemies in areas that you might want to edit or change, you need to be familiar with every corner of the things, hidden stuff and whatever, and all the moving parts so that you all you have to do is focus on the second part of prep, which is what elements of the mood and character development are germane to the next upcoming sessions. And as a general rule, what you want to do is you want to prepare a little bit farther in advance. Say you have a four-hour session, prepare for six or seven hours. And if you're doing that with every session, you're going over the same things. You're not getting through everything, and it reinforces what it is you're doing. If it's a box adventure, it includes reading over the elements of the areas of the adventure that the PCs are likely to get to. Now, you need to make sure, even if it's like a particularly big dungeon, maybe just this wing of the thing. I know the party is trending in this direction. I usually do this between acts of adventures by getting a sense of what it is the PCs intend to do. Maybe they've just finished one dungeon crawl and now they have four or five options that they're, they're, they're ready. You have to try to get an idea from your PCs as to what's the next leg of the adventure, because you can't obviously prep three or four, like say there's three more dungeons they're go they could potentially go to. You can't know all of them well. You want to get an idea of which one they're going to. NPCs are a good voice for this. Like, you know, they'll kind of like, hey, like, what's the party doing? You know, and then they get some information from your, your PCs about where they're going. And once you have that plot, plot thread kind of uh, plotted out, pun intended, um, you get an idea of like, what are the components along there? That is the action element of the adventure. The next prepping would be, okay, I know what the next, the action that's going to come up, the who, what, where, when of, of it all. This is where it's going to occur. Here are the things that I might want to change from a box adventure, the details that are important. Then you can start to think about if there's a change in tone in the adventure from one locale to another. How can I bolster that theme? What are some micro moments of scene setting? of dramatic tension, of character stuff. How can I pull different characters into the thing with these 
travel montages or with quieter moments. Those things require more detail and thought. But they can only occur once you have the big pillar things of what happens. The party goes through this room and the next thing, the next session, and there's a golem. I don't know what this golem is. You need to study its stat block and go over it so you know how to run that character. This is all under the umbrella of what I call preppy, is make sure that everything is familiar to you by time it comes up. And if you're always prepping a little bit longer than as time goes on, you have to prep less. It's This is what why me and Matt say that we're not a big fan of quote unquote over prepping. I get a box adventure. I read through the whole fucking adventure when I get it. Then as the PCs get to each element, I read over that closely and a little bit more and a little bit more. And so by the time the party gets to Castle Ravenloft, I'll have read over that castle like seven or eight or 10 times. And you need to do that if something is particularly big. Now, if it's a homebrew adventure, something that you've come up with, you likely know things a little bit closer to home, to mm-hmm. Matt's point. This is the benefit of a homebrew adventure. The last, the last campaign that I ran that was a Curse of Strahd, I was just trying something out where I ran everything from up in my head because I'm very good at staging stuff that I come up with off the top of my brain. And I thought and suspected that I might be able to run an entire adventure. If you're coming up with it, the only prep that you should need to be doing is just making sure that you maybe understand the NPCs and kind of some ways that you can make them come alive and make them see them a little more motivated, refresh yourself with their goals or some moving parts of the stuff. But if you're putting pen to paper, you're writing it down and being the author of it is likely to familiarize yourself more with it. That Beyond that, I think just kind of like micro things, right? Yeah, I Making was going to say, you- so uh, for, you say we got a session coming up. David is mm-hmm. a much bigger fan of random encounters than I am. Like he likes to roll for random encounters. So what do you do for that, Dave? I've never, I never asked you if you have like a little arsenal at your side or if you just kind of like thumb through the 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 bestiary and pick something depends box adventures sometimes just have random encounter charts uh like this is the 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 range i like to mix it up i think that if you understand the adventure and where it's going then there's a predictability there for the pcs and it makes it really easy just to kind of throw a random element in there usually i'll build a random encounter table or chart Mm. and try to have some of those or like a i would say have Two out of three of the encounters, one one out of three encounters should probably be a combat encounter. And then it forces you to think about other things that give the world texture, uh, in particular when the party is traveling. But sometimes you can even do this in a particularly big dungeon where the PCs might be inclined to kind of sit back and kind of hunker down in a room or whatever and plod through things because they think everything is compartmentalized just throw a wrench in that by just having random encounters for you know if the pcs are here longer than 10 or 15 minutes then just roll on this chart and um in general i think that that's a pretty easy micro thing Mm. Uh, similarly like just making sure that you have all of the stuff that you need for the upcoming encounter. Now you don't need to have, 
it depends on if you're playing online or whatever, but you're playing in person. I used to have the monster cards, right? Okay, yeah. this is the next leg of the adventure. I got every monster that's in this next like 10, this, this next area of the dungeon. I got them all lined up and I know what all their powers do. Here are the magic items that are, that are available. Here are the things that I've changed. I make sure that I have the any flavor text that I've written or whatever prepared in advance so that it's just easy organization. It's all about streamlining the game and knowing where the, where the adventures and encounters are going to go. Okay. So you don't really have to worry about doing math for challenge ratings and all that. It's more like if you roll for this and it's a herd of boars, then you can just throw some shit at you. don't really care the actual power level of it. Mostly encounter, random encounters are there to add texture. And depending on the environment, I think if you're the one coming up with the random encounters, then you should just be doing them within a range. Hmm. So I, that you know that anything on that chart that you roll is going to be within the range for the PCs when they're in that area. Mm -hmm. I know that we've talked about it before. You, at least you've, you've told me many a times, a lot of the things that you do throughout the adventure is not just to just throw shit at you it's also because we could just run away if we wanted to we could not even deal with this random encounter but you say mm -hmm. at some point you you're either gonna have to work in some sort of resource be it hit points be it hit die be it potions be it whatever some sort of resource is going to be used during this and that's just a thing that happens throughout adventures is resource management is a lot more than a lot of players give it uh, that's a part of the game aspect of it, which I really enjoy. Uh, while some people just, they just want their, uh, the stories all good, but resources, they, so a lot of people don't realize how big the resources is of the game and, uh, random encounters is one of those to make the players spend those resources. Or at the very least, make them make a decision about how right. worthwhile an endeavor is. It's yeah. the same thing when you have a ticking clock sort of situation. This is the reason I like the milestone leveling is it, it discourages like XP mining. Oh, random encounter. There's a mana core. We can fight that. That's worth it. And we'll get it and whatever. We can sell this stuff. for. It's like, yeah, but this doesn't count toward anything. Yeah. Like it's a threat to you. You need to decide how you want to deal with it. If it's worth your time to deal with it. And if so, what is, what are the cost of that? Like, like you said, resource management over a long arc of an adventure should be a thing that is if you're trying to make the world lived in and less stage some dms like a more staged kind of set piece environments right where this this encounter happens here kind of in a bubble and then you go over here and that that allows you to have the pcs not need to worry so much about resource management which takes a load off their mind but i think it also makes the world seem a little more siloed and makes it feel a little more like a like a video game or something where it's like these bubbles of things are not really interconnected in a way that makes the PCs feel like they can explore any given corner of the world. Um, but that cuts both ways too because if PCs don't have to worry about resource management when you have like these cloistered encounters that take place in this environment you can make the encounters the battles especially much more challenging because you're not pulling the the pc's resources 
spell slots and healing potions mm-hmm. and things that they use at second wind and their racial abilities. They're not, they can just put all of them into each encounter and they have a higher degree of confidence that nothing will pull from that resource without it being like a big threat toward the plot of the adventure, in which case they just go more balls out. So it's just two schools of thought. I prefer the former as opposed to the latter. But Agreed. So there you go, Chad. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, as long as you don't go over one sheet, uh, I think you're going to be fine. And if you do decide to do box adventures, read them. Coming from experience, just read through them as much as you can. Um, you know what? This is almost kind of like a side tangent, but Dave, have you found it easier when you go to read rule books now that you read through them a lot faster than we did years ago? Because you know where the information is likely to be structured and where where you might not understand certain elements. Okay, I get this. I know, yeah. okay, what's the core mechanic here? How it, yeah, I can, I can get through them faster because I know what I can skim and what I need to kind of read. Yeah, I was reading like. through, I pulled down off my, uh, off my shelf the other day. I pulled down the uh, Cyberpunk Red core book <laughs> and because I've never read it from, you know, all the way through. And I sat there and I started going through it. And next thing I knew, I was three quarters of the way through the book. And I only been reading it for like an hour and a half. I was like, holy shit, dude. I remember back when we were first going from D&D to playing Vampire. And me trying to read through Vampire, it took hours and hours. Mm-hmm. And in order to read the whole thing, it took weeks to read the whole yeah. thing. But now I can just grab a book. and I, In an hour and a half, two hours, I'll have read the entire thing. But I've just, it's like it's like a new muscle that I've been training. And the same thing with modules now. Whenever I get a box adventure, I'll read through that fucking thing so quick. Just because I like you said, I know what I'm looking for. Yeah, it's because you you know what requires a little more detail, you know. Um so I don't remember the last time you what is role playing? Chapter one. You know, you're like, I I know what that is, right? I don't, <laughs> maybe you skim through it or something. But as a general rule, you know the components. And once you know one or two role-playing game systems, you're really scanning for what's different. What's new to me? Same thing with a module. You, they're, they're typically broken down. First act, second act, third act, culmination, big bad here, you know, lieutenant fight here. So you're just skimming for the details that might be uh, new or foreign to yeah, you. Yeah. And so it's it's pretty similar in the way that you... If you've seen one sitcom, you probably are more prepared for the trajectory of a sitcom. Um, you don't need to watch them as closely or whatever. Right. So, all right. Well, there you go, Chad. Uh, hope that we were able to help a little bit. <clears throat> but uh, for next one, we have from our uh, our number one fan, uh, Rebecca, is back. As she sent me an email, uh, is the gritty realism variant incompatible with dungeon-based adventures? For people who forgot or just don't know, the gritty realism variant increases the time required for a short rest. Uh, so the short rest is up to eight hours and time required for a long rest is a full week. It's primarily intended so that a DM can have the recommended number of encounters per rest in a campaign where players aren't normally fighting multiple enemies every single day. Uh, to answer the question uh, from me, no, not at all. Consider the most iconic dungeon adventure in fantasy the passage through Moria and Fellowship of the Ring. 
In the space of several days of travel, they participate in all of four combat encounters, one of which consists entirely of running away. Now, the gritty realism variant will uh, will incentive wait realism variant incentives a very different play style. The party isn't going to be able to just bash into a room after kill after, uh, bash into room after room, killing as they go. They'll be incentivized to rely on stealth and diplomacy, fighting ba- battles only when necessary. The DM is encouraged to create short, focused dungeons, not sprawling slogs. But that makes for a better dungeon experience, not a worse one. What do you guys think, and what is your thoughts on the gritty realism variant uh, in general? That's an astute observation on her point, and it's much more conducive to a literary or cinematic style of play. I don't necessarily favor it because I think D and D is not the right system for it. D and D is more of a system that lends itself to a more dungeon crawly aspect of of things. And so, if you're having a more plot driven uh, campaign more like a Lord of the Rings or even some sort of sword and the sorcery quest style thing, then yeah, it, it can work and maybe it's appropriate, but I don't know why it's super relevant unless you want the PCs to feel like the world is really dangerous and and gritty i don't necessarily see the point in it um that's you and i guess it's a way of saying you're still free to run that style of campaign without using that gritty realism but i think that yeah it makes it more difficult to have more boilerplate dungeon crawl scenarios in an adventure you Mm. you do need to kind of silo things off a little bit more and make them more dramatic and and whatever because if you tried running those those variant rules with pretty much any box adventure that you're gonna get your players are likely to find it too challenging oh yeah i don't know what you oh definitely uh for this this is something that i could see if you were creating your own world your own adventures and you wanted this campaign to last for two to three years this is the way to go about it also, this is a good way to, because when I was thinking about it earlier this week, when I first read the email, uh, this is a good way to put on par your spellcasters and your marshals, uh, like the fighter, the monk, uh, they rely on short rest a lot more than wizards and all them do. Yeah. Uh, this makes your martial classes way more effective and much more powerful than the spellcasters as the spellcasters like a wizard alone without their arcane recovery is that what it's called arcane recovery yeah 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 uh as soon as that's used uh they gotta wait a whole week before they can replenish their spell slots oh boy not as uh not as tough as they once were i it, it probably uh as kind of a note on that like to piggyback on that notion if you 
foster a world where magic is more rare, then maybe that's appropriate. <laughs> and so if magic is, is more powerful, which means that a lot, a lot of people use it um, or have access to it, you limit those resources a little more so that a spell has a little bit um, more oomph to it. Mm -hmm. Like if the, I mean, how frequently do, again, just point to other fantasy things. They don't usually have wizards. If they do, they're working behind the scenes. You know, it's hordes of orcs and goblins and stuff like that. And so that's to my point is that D&D &D is more designed for, is, closer to a video game than a, than a literary narrative. And mm -hmm. in which case I think, you know, you want to pull in the direction away from a video game, but it, you, you're hard pressed to make D and D something that's like, like Lord of the Rings or, or any, even something like Harry Potter or whatever, because that always, I always criticize those things. Like, it, like if Gandalf is such a powerful fucking wizard, why don't, and he can control the weather, why doesn't he just stand up on top of a hill and just fire down fucking lightning bolts? It's like, because it's a super powerful thing. And because Gandalf is one of like two or three wizards that we're aware of in all of Middle Earth, it's super rare. And so, but in D&D, &D, it's not that way. Like every third or fourth character is like, oh yeah, I can cast spells. Yeah, yeah. you can cast spells too. Yeah, totally. Right on. You can't cast spells? Like, oh, come on. You know, so if you're going to have low magic then i think that the system can kind of work and give a little more impact to the magic that might come back on a weekly basis or something you know one thing i'll say if you want to do something like this i've seen it in the past it was more for fourth edition i think i saw it being used a lot more is it's again as much like the uh the gm's the milestone uh thing going on <clears throat> The GM Excuse me. finds a uh, a point where he feels like you guys. This is a nice safe point. You can take a long rest now. Uh, short rests are pretty much the same as usual, uh, as long as you take them. Uh, what is it? Uh, there are they. They're supposed to be a couple hours apart, right? What's that? Short rest. Short rest a couple hours. No, you can apart. take short rest whenever the fuck you want because they're only an hour. Yeah, no, take them whenever you want. Long yeah. rest is you got to do right. a, uh, in between each one more eight hours, right? Um, but short rest, uh, you could take as frequent as usual. But the the DM or GM, whoever it is, would say at some point, "All right, you guys get a long rest tonight," uh, which gives it that still that hardcore gritty feeling, uh, but it's not as hardcore as having to wait like a whole week in game in order for you to get the long rest. The, the real key to the notion of how long you want rest to be has to do with the pacing of your adventure. Do you want fast and furious bits of action and then maybe long travel times between or something like that? In which case, I think we get caught up in it's one or the other. Mm -hmm. You could conceivably have, okay, here's what I'm going to do. A long rest is, say, two days, not eight hours. It's a full 24 hours, or it's two days, or it's three days, or it's a week, or whatever. But a short rest is only like five to 10 minutes. And what that would do is it means that, like, the characters are coming into an area of, like, high hostility or something. 
and they can come through in sword and sorcery fashion and just like fight everybody. And they only need like a breather between each encounters, right? Like probably while they like slay enemies and they search the room, you know, they, they plunder the gold or whatever. And that, and then boom, they, they get a, that counts as a short rest. And so they get a short rest basically after every encounter or two, but they don't get a long rest until like maybe they've achieved some milestone. They clear that area. And then when they do it, it takes more than a couple of days. I think the whole notion of things take longer than they do typically gritty or they take shorter and they're more heroic. They're antithetical to your goal, which is like, okay, what do you want the pace to be? Do you want it to be slow? Then yeah, maybe longer rests entirely is the way to go. Maybe, but you could do a hybrid where it's like the long rests are longer. They represent the character's abilities to, I'm going to use the pro athlete analogy again, because it's always fucking relevant. A pro, you know, an NFL football player, high, like one game a week, he just like pushes his body to the fucking max. He can't do that every day. He needs a week to recuperate, right? And because it's really, really high intensity and adventurers are like that. If they have this we have to go into this nest of goblins and we have, we have a bunch of resources at our disposal, spell slots and so forth. And when we come out of here, we're going to be like a wrung out rag, but we, if we're victorious, we're not going to go into another scenario like that for a couple of days. Cause we have to like, you know, follow the trail of goblins to the far end and catch this ship and, and sail off. And there's time for political intrigue and, and whatever. But if you want, a longer dungeon crawl where it's like explore this giant old mine or old temple. I really favor small, like five, six, seven, eight room dungeons that are really test the metal of the players, but that's a sprint and not a marathon. And, and so you need to short rests are more appropriate at a shorter rate there. And if you're going to have pillar things that aren't more of a marathon, it's like a sprint and then a lag, then you could do a hybrid of the two or longer, long rest, but shorter, short rest. It depends on what sort of tenor you're trying to achieve. The boilerplate tenor of D&D is what it is that, you know, it's, it's more like segmented into longer crawls and longer exploration sort of thing. All right. Uh-oh. Rebecca, what is this? This is number three. Three down. Keep them coming. Uh, we'll be waiting for you. But uh, let's move away from that. <clears throat> oh, man, I think, wow, your cough is coming through the Internet and getting to me. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's impressive. I had in here that I wanted to talk about the new OGL rules, but I'm going to push that right now because I want to see how this plays out a little bit. At the moment right now, the way that the new OGL uh, rules have come around, the, uh, the old OGL that's been around for fucking ever and what made Pathfinder and Paizo what they were was uh, under 900 words. The new OGL words uh, rules that they got coming out is over 9,000 words right now and growing. Uh, and it's making it very hard for people that have made a living on making uh, role-playing games and role-playing game supplements. Uh, it's going to be very, very hard. And... Uh, we're waiting to see what's going to happen with this stuff. So I'm going to hold off on it just right now because I'm not very happy with it. And I want to see where they're going to go. So okay. let's go into something a little bit better. Let's go into the awards for 2022 that I made. 
Okay. No, not the intro music. <laughs> I want this. <laughs> Welcome to the Inside the GM Studio uh, Awards of 2022. I broke it down to a couple different uh, tiers that I thought would be better. Uh, instead of me going through my entire list that I made, that would have been an entire episode. So let's start with new game of the year that Matt has not played yet. All these games came out in 2022, uh, and they are all something that I'm looking forward to playing at some point. Starting off with Cyborg uh, by Free League Publishing. So back in 2020, uh, Mork Borg was released, immediately captured the attention of role-playing game enthusiasts across the industry and the community. With its striking art style, dark themes, and unusual layout, Mork Borg was exceptionally hard to ignore. Uh, several uh, any awards later, those are essentially the highest awards an RPG can win, and uh, the heavy metal-inspired role-playing game is already getting its first spin-off in the form of Cyborg, whose title is both the most obvious and absolutely genius creative choice ever made. Taking place in a cyberpunk setting where the consequences of our uncle of uncontrolled capitalism have fully come home to roost. Cyborg sees players becoming misfits, fighting back against the corporate systems and policing departments seeking to oppress the people. While Cyborg will feature many of the kinds of topics that we are used to in cyberpunk narratives dealing with capitalism, transhumanism, and technology, it's bound to do in a way that we've likely never seen before. If Mork Borg is anything to go... Uh, sorry, added that on. Nothing that we've ever seen before if Borg is anything to go by. Having more RPGs be inspired by the genres of music is a fantastic thing uh, because it's a concept that makes so much sense considering how immersive music can make role-playing. Cyborg will be taking inspiration from the industrial and underground hip-hop music of the 1990s. Number two would be the Blade Runner RPG by, yet again, Free League Publishing. <laughs> This is the Blade Runner role-playing game, a neon-noir wonderland that'll take your breath away. One way or another, an evocative world of conflicts and contrasts that dares to ask the hard questions and investigative, investigate the powers of empathy, the poisons of fear, and the burdens of being human during inhumane times, an iconic and unforgiving playground of endless possibilities that pick you, pick you up, slap you in the face, and tell you to wake up. Number three is Vason. I believe I'm saying that properly. It's Swedish. I'm not really sure. By, you guessed it, Free League Publishing. We got a little thing going on here. In dark forests beyond the mountains, by black lakes and hidden groves, at your doorstep in the shadows, something stirs strange beings, twisted creatures lurking at the edge of vision, watching, waiting, unseen by most, but not by you. You see them for what they really are, Basin. Uh, those are the three that I have... Uh, put together uh, for the three games that came out in 2020 that I haven't played. And the winner is going to be Blade Runner RPG because I really, really want to fucking play the Blade Runner RPG. I got a quick look at it the other day, uh, just like being able to skim through some of the stuff. And like, I have no idea any of the mechanics yet. God damn, the book alone is fucking gorgeous. Uh, I can't wait to actually be able to sit back and actually read this and see what they've come up with. Uh, from what it seems to be, Free League Publishing is the new publisher to watch as they're putting out all the good stuff right now. Uh, next segment is Best Supplement of the Year. 
Now, these are all supplements that I have found in 2020. Some of them came out before our 2022. Some of them came out before I had never known of them until this past year. <laughs> there are supplements Matt found in 2020. Yes, exactly. Uh, first being Carbon 2185 by Dragon Turtle Games. Uh, Carbon 2185 is a cyberpunk RPG created by uh, uh, Robert Dodds, released in 2019. Uh, Carbon 2185 is all about telling stories in a dark dystopian future influenced by franchises such as Blade Runner, Ghost in the Shell, and Deus Ex. Uh, the core mechanics and the rules of Carbon 2185 are built using and developed from the OGL going back. So anybody who has experience with uh, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edi edition, this game system uh, has a unique will have a unique advantage in learning these new rules. Next one is Elflines Online by R. Telsorian Games. What is Elflines Online? Uh, it is the best MMO ever produced, available exclusively on the Segatory Rush Revolution VR console. Yes, this is actually a game inside a game, as this is an MMO played inside of the Cyberpunk Red universe. Uh, <laughs> so what they did is at first, this was just a April Fool's joke, I guess. And uh, they just made a whole DLC that if you want to play in a medieval fantasy style, uh, these are the rules to use with the Cyberpunk Red mechanics. And third uh, is Savage Pathfinder by Paizo and Pinnacle Entertainment Group. Uh, Pathfinder for Savage Worlds combines the fast, furious fun of the best-selling, award-winning Savage Worlds game system. I am not biased at all. Uh, with the <laughs> incredible depth and excitement of Paizo's phenomenal Pathfinder role-playing game and the world of Galarian, create your own adventures mm -hmm. or play one of the legendary adventure paths, starting with Rise of the Rune Lords, available separately if you guys want to know. The book contains the Savage Worlds rules, uh, especially tailored for the world of Galarian. And the winner is... Uh, I wonder who this is going to be. Did you guess Savage Pathfinder? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I fucking loved what they did it feels like playing DD, feels like you're playing pathfinder but with rules that are just a little bit quicker easier to handle uh but coming from a game system that has no classes and making it feel like this class that you chose is special in a way they did a fantastic fucking job uh i've had two groups now that has successfully done Savage Pathfinder, played Savage Pathfinder, and everybody's been a fan so far. Uh, I cannot wait to see where they keep going. I'm going to continue to buy uh, the Rise of the Rune Lords series, and even if I don't have people that want to play it, I'm sure there will be someday, and I will continue to play this because it is awesome. I love everything that they've done with it. If you've ever wanted to try something new, and you don't think that your players or you wanted to go too far away from a D&D feeling game, definitely try out Savage Pathfinder. I think you'll find it that it's at least close enough that people won't bitch too much. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I expected your uh, that game that you got, the Thunder of the Barbarian style Oh, game, Hyperborea? You know? Yeah. I expected that to be on there, but I guess not. No, uh, because that was the third edition. Third edition did come out yesterday or last year, but I haven't read all the way through it yet. Uh, so. Oh, okay. 
that's something that I want to try to check out a little bit more before I go into it. That one was a big toss-up because uh, Hyperborea and Mork Borg are very much the same. Uh, but the Mork Borg world is just so much better. It's just a lot funner. And the book is just way funner. a lot nicer to uh, read through. It's just metal as fuck. I love it. Um, and we are going to end with a uh, game of the year that Matt has played. Mm -hmm. Starting with uh, Index Card RPG Master Edition by Runehammer Games. Uh, Index Card RPG, also known as ICRPG, has slowly built a diehard following of DIY RPG creators and players over the last five years. Until now, it has been found in three hard copy books and new, uh, numerous PDFs published by Runehammer. Uh, this newest edition, the Master Edition, combines ICRPG's numerous worlds, streamlined D20 rules, and critically acclaimed GM know-how all-in-one PDF, all revised and updated with the latest playtest data, magic system, loop tables, so much more. I love ICRPG. The more and more I read into it, the more I'm digging it. Uh, of course, just like any other game, there's going to be shit that you don't really dig, but with ICRPG, it's very few and far between. I'm using more of the GM rules section than anything else as, uh, goddamn, I can never remember the guy's name, Hank, Hank's, uh, it's like Hank, but it's more. I can't remember. Write in, let us know. And I'm not going to go right. It. Yeah, something like that, but uh, it's a little different. His uh, GM knowledge and how he runs things, I found to be very, very cool. Next is uh, De Deadlands, the Weird West. The year's 1884. Folks from all over the world journey to the American frontier in search of opportunity, freedom, and wide-open spaces. But danger awaits. Some say there are more than just wild creatures on those lonely trails. Some say there are monsters, creatures born of the darkest fears given life by this, some insidious and overwhelming evil. Out here, night seems a little darker, the distance between towns a little farther and something changes the very landscape itself. Such tough times also create great heroes rising across the West to fight evil's cold grip with a trusty six-gun, sacred tomahawk, holy miracle, or arcane hex. Deadlands was originally the... Uh, oh, shit, what do they call that? Uh, the flag... Uh, fuck. The flag? Fuck, why am I blanking on that name? The uh, It's the... It was the first thing... Uh, Flagship. Flagship. Thank you. It was the flagship for Savage Worlds. Uh, Deadlands was before it was called Savage Worlds. It was just Deadlands, and then they moved on to make the uh, the generic system of Savage Worlds. Uh, this newest version. Yeah, that, that's what I. Th that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, I always I always had an association of like Savage Worlds with like kind of a almost like a Jonah Hex kind mm -hmm. of like environment. Very much so. And this new version that they just came out with for Suede uh, is the best one that they've done yet. It's a lot darker, way more horror-driven. Uh, the fear tables and the fear indexes that they have for this game, uh, it's a different way of using fear, which I've really uh, gotten into quite a bit. I like that fear affects an area that you're going into more than yourselves, your party. Uh the fear can do anywhere from make monsters stronger to making towns hate your guts and make you want to die. Uh, but I've been having a lot of fun with Deadlands. I have ran it for a little while, and I enjoyed everything I did with it until the party uh, fizzled out because everybody got new jobs. 
but it was a lot of fun. And I highly suggest everybody out there to go out and at least give it a read through, see what you think. And last but not least on the list of game of the year that Matt has played, Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition by World of Darkness and Renegade Game Studios. Uh, the classic that changed role-playing games forever returns. This 5th Edition feature is streamlined and modern rules design, beautiful new fully colored art, and rich story experience for players. Powered by the innovative hunger cycle, the game also includes rules for creating system-supported coteries, lore sheets, to directly involve players with their favorite parts of the setting and the memoriam, a new way to bring the characters detailed backgrounds and expand on them in, in the sessions. Uh, V5 is a return to the vampire's original vision, moving boldly into the 21st century. While the rules have been redesigned, this new edition uh, honors the deep story of the original, advancing the meta plot from where it left off and detailing exactly what has happened in the world of the kindred up until tonight. The terror of the Second Inquisition, the conspiracies behind the Gehenna War, and the rekindling of the War of Ages. These are the building blocks of the modern V5 Chronicle. Uh, fifth edition for Vampire, uh, they went back and they kind of just vetoed everything that they did for uh, the, uh, the last one. I don't even remember the name of it because I read through the book and it was fucking garbage. Uh, nobody yeah, it seemed more like an, it seemed more like an anime or some shit. Nobody that I... liked the vampire book that, when they came out with like the Chronicles of Darkness, uh, all that. Every other game, be it werewolf, mage, changeling, everybody loved them. They thought they were great. They were darker. They were more monstrous and all this other stuff. But vampire, nobody gave a shit. They thought it was garbage and nobody wanted it. So, uh, so World of Darkness uh, finally was able to get their grips back on this. Uh, and they came out with fifth edition, uh, which I played, I played in a couple games. Now I tried running some back when they were doing the beta. Um, there were some things I thought they really needed to work on back then when they were doing the beta, Dave, I think you played with me when we were doing the, when they had the beta out. Yeah. I think we played like once, maybe twice. Yeah. There's a lot of things they needed to work on during that. Yeah. But now since it's been out in full force, I actually got to play recently. I think it was about four months ago. I actually got to play in a four game uh, chronicle that was so much fucking fun. But the storyteller was, I mean, he was spot on with everything. He knew the rules back and forth. Uh, all we did is we got on Discord and there was no tabletop, no nothing. We just rolled our dice here. We had our character sheets on us and the storyteller was just amazing. He did really good work. So, um, the award is going to, for Game of the Year that Matt has played, I'm giving it to Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. Just because it was so fucking good. The things that they have added, as well as streamlined from old 2nd Edition that we used to play. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing. And uh, one of the things that I didn't like was how the Hunger Dice worked and Frenzy. Uh, because you could frenzy so easily depending on your role they made it so that like right. every time you rolled it was possible to frenzy i hated that the yes. guy that was running the game that i was playing he i don't even remember what he did i wish i did because he made it flow so well maybe it's just because he knew the rules way better than me but the way that he made it flow uh you felt the urge you know he's like you feel the urge of the frenzy you can feel it coming upon you uh but it's uh, you hold it back as if it was uh, just that same 
uh, that same chip on your shoulder that you've been trying to get rid of for the last 200 years. And it's like, ooh, 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 yes. Uh, but I'm very happy with uh, what World of Darkness has been able to do uh, since they've gotten all their rights back. Um, I saw now that they have Hunter 5th Edition as well as there's Hunter and... Oh, my God. There's one other one. I can't remember what it is, though, but they've uh, revamped those. I really want to see what they're going to do if they do Werewolf again. Uh, because I mean, I love the idea of Werewolf. I just don't like the lore of Werewolf. Never liked it. Um, Changeling, if it goes anywhere from like the uh, the Lost I would love to read that because Changeling the Lost was fucking amazing. Um, Mage, of course. I really want to see what they do with Mage. And I think those are the only ones I really care about. Uh, but that is my list of awards that I wanted to give out for the uh, for 2022. I thought those were the most, uh, the ones that really affected me and how many, how I was playing my games of that year. And uh, would there be anything you wanted to add on for your gaming of 2022, Dave? No, I've been in a single lane. I would, I was hoping to finish the Curse of Strahd. That's not going to happen. So here's here's for hoping for uh, some point next year. End of 2023. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I think that's gonna that's gonna be a podcast for this week. Uh, Let's see here. What am I doing? What do we do? How do we end these things? We haven't done this in a while. Okay, so here we go. Uh, If you out there in listening land uh, have any question, comments, uh, some shit for us to listen to, uh, talk about all that, send it to inside the GM studio at gmail.com. I'm sure, Rebecca, you've already working on your next one. I'll be waiting for it. Um, But I think that's going to be it for us. For this episode, I've been met. I have sort of been David here today. Yeah, that's it. So, uh, good night. Yeah.